repentance. Uh, John chapter 17. So we've been doing this series that we've called Fields around the idea of Jesus' words in John chapter 4 when he said that the fields were white with harvest. Another place he said that the harvest was plentiful, but the workers are few. So we've been trying to change the trajectory of that so that he would find all the workers that he needs here at Bayou City Fellowship. And we've come around the idea that you have been assigned a field in the same way that you might say to someone when they ask, what field of work are you in? You might say, I'm an engineer or I'm a teacher or I'm a stay-at-home mom or I'm in construction or I'm in a service industry or I'm an administrator. Whatever it is that you would be able to describe what kind of kingdom field that you work in. Uh, he's uniquely gifted you and he's uniquely called you to minister to bring in the harvest in some kind of field. That field may be your street. It may be the place that you work. It may be in your family. It may be in a specific uh, lane of ministry here in the city of Houston. But you have a field. We've talked about that there are people in that field. We've talked about how to have credibility with those people. We've talked about how God even uses our suffering to help us to identify and sympathize with the people who are hurting in our field. Last uh, week, we talked about enduring in our field. We've talked about loving in our field and If you haven't caught any of those messages, I would encourage you to get online and listen to them on the podcast during the week. And we don't normally do that, but I would love for you to do that, especially if you're you're new with us, because every church has a personality. You know, if you went down to any church in in this area and said, where are you getting your instructions? What are they going to say? They're going to say the Bible. That's the exact same thing we would say. They would say, who's the leader of your church? They would say, Jesus is the leader of our church. The exact same thing that we would say. But every church has a personality. Just like your individual children have individual personalities, churches have personalities too. And this series, Fields, is really the personality of our church. So if you really want to understand what Bayou City Fellowship is all about, then get online, listen to a few of those messages. Not only will it benefit you personally, but it will also help you to know what kind of family you are in when you come to church here. Well, we're going to start a new series today. We're going to spend the next seven weeks just walking through one chapter of Scripture, John chapter 17. We're just going to sit together in the Word of God, which will be really great for us. And what we're doing is we're eavesdropping and listening in on Jesus's prayer. Anybody ever listened in on your prayers or you've listened in on someone else's prayers? It can be kind of awkward, right? Where that happens most of all is when you're uh, eating dinner at a restaurant and you want to do the blessing. And when you wake up or wake up, when you uh, open your eyes... (laughs) From the blessing, like all of your waiters and waitresses are right there, and they've just been listening to it. It's awkward, isn't it? Uh, we used to have some friends uh, who they were long-winded prayers. You know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about. I really embraced Jesus' words when he said that we are not heard because of our many words. So I just think if you can say it shortly, you might as well just say it shortly instead of saying it in a in a real long way. But these friends of ours didn't really embrace that and. And I just kind of check out after about two minutes over the meal prayer. Like if you pray longer for, than two minutes over the meal, then like I just wake up. I mean, I'm just like up. I open up my eyes and I'm just going about my business because that's praying way too long. And I know I'm a pastor, but still, like you're praying even too long for me. So a few years ago, we were at lunch with these friends and um, the first wave of food came, the salads or appetizers or whatever it was. And 
somebody felt that we should pray at this moment. And, and somebody called on one of our long-winded brothers and sisters. And so they just, they just started just going for it. I mean, they're going around the circle of the table, just praying for each and every person individually. God, I thank you for Curtis. And I just pray your favor on his life. And I'm like, thank you, but like, pray that later. It's time to eat, you know. And then they go on to, thank you for Amanda. And I just ask your favor on her life. And just all the way down, they got into some intercessory prayer. They're praying for our nation. Like anytime that you... Pray for the nation over the meal. I just feel like that's not the right place. So the two-minute mark, I'm watching, and I'm done. I'm done praying. And so I sit up and open up my eyes. I get out of the prayer posture, and I can see here comes our waiters and waitresses with all the food, and they got all the trays, but our friend is still going for it, and now they've moved on to world events. Like It's really unbelievable how they're still praying. And so the waiters and waitresses get there. Thankfully, I can host them as the only one not praying at the table, And so I just tell them, you know, kind of in a whisper, that one's mine. I'll take it over here right now. (laughs) There's no sense in in praying that long, you know, seriously. And you need to think about that when you go to lunch today. But it can be awkward, right? It can be awkward for somebody to listen in on your prayer. It can be awkward for you to listen in on somebody else's prayer. But for the next seven weeks, that's what we're going to do with Jesus. And you can tell a lot about a person by the way they pray. You can, talk, you can tell about how they view their relationship with God. You can tell how they view the situation that they're currently in. You, you can tell their theology. You can tell a lot of different things. And this series is going to be so helpful. And we're going to look at just the first five verses today. So just the opening paragraphs of Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. And this is the idea that we're coming around this morning. You can see it on the screen. God is glorified when Jesus is glorified And in the midst of all that glory, we receive eternal life. God is glorified when Jesus is glorified. And in the midst of all that glory, we receive eternal life. Verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. For you gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to all you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So in verse 1, we get the context. Jesus had been speaking all these things. In John chapter 13, he's with his disciples At the Last Supper, the final Passover meal, he washes their feet. In John chapter 14, he begins to teach them. He teaches them that he is the way to the Father. He is access to the Father. In John chapter 15, he talks to us about what it means to abide in him and uh, how we're pruned. But the pruning is for our good. In John chapter 16, he talks about the Holy Spirit. He talks about how our sorrow turns to joy. He talks about how he has victory and he has conquered the world. In John chapter 17, he, he prays to the Father. And in John chapter 18, he's betrayed and he is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this prayer is coming on the heels of all of this, uh, these words that he has spoken. And he says, the hour has come. And what that means is the purpose for which you sent me here, I'm on the edge of that. I've gotten to the very edge. I'm at the starting line of the race, but I've already done all the preparation. I've already done all the training. I've already laid the groundwork. I've already set the table. And now the hour has come. This is why you've sent me. Now what? Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. What Jesus 
Jesus is saying is shine a spotlight on me. And when you shine a spotlight on me, then I'm going to shine that spotlight right back to you. Now, you've maybe prayed this prayer before. I know I have. God, give me this promotion. And if when you give me this promotion, I'm going to give you all the credit. I'm going to give you all the glory. I'm going to give you all the honor. God, you know, give us a million dollars. That would be so fantastic. God, if you gave me a million dollars, we'd tithe at least 5% of it. I mean, 5%, maybe 10, maybe 20. Maybe, maybe we're just so desperate. We'll tip half, half of it to your church, God. You shine the spotlight on me. You bless me like this. I'm going to shine the spotlight on you. You, you help my kids do this. I'm going to give you all the credit and all the glory and all the honor. And those are great prayers to pray. But rarely does God make that deal with me. Rarely does he answer me and give me what I want so that I will in return do that. And the reason I think he doesn't is because he knows that we have different hearts than Jesus. See, my heart and your heart is twisted up with sin and self-centeredness. But Jesus could pray this prayer with total purity of heart. He could honestly say, if you glorify me, when you glorify me, I will glorify you. Where if we said it honestly, maybe we would glorify him. Maybe we would shine the spotlight back to him. But maybe we would shine 70% of the spotlight back to him. Maybe we would do 50%. But Jesus could say this with purity of heart. You know, we all have a a me filter. You know, your me filter. Uh, Your me filter is uh, you're only concerned about events or things that affect you and, and me. And everything that we take in goes through that me filter. With world news and events, when do you start caring about what is happening in Africa? about the moment that you realize that it somehow affects our country. If our country is affected, now we're concerned about things that are happening. I mean, even the flood here in Houston. At what point did you start to feel affected by that flood? I would guess for most of it, it was when we were personally affected or somebody we knew was affected and their being affected affected us. And if those two things weren't true, I would guess you just kind of went about your normal business and complained about all the traffic or that you couldn't send your kids to school on that one day because, you know, you were ready. It had already been a pretty long weekend, right? We only uh, are affected by things that affect us because we run them through um, me filter. We do that with serious things. We do that with really silly things. Like has your ever, ever your favorite TV show gotten canceled? And what are we? We're outraged, right? Like we don't ever consider that the, the television company is losing literally millions of dollars every time that show is on. We only care that we have been affected. That's our me filter. Have you ever showed up to one of your favorite restaurants and the menu changed? I mean, that's like World War III is on. Amanda and I and the kids and our whole family, we went to Papacitos for Jackson's birthday in February and we got to dessert time. It's a birthday, so we got to order dessert. And we got churros, and they were, they were good. It was like God's goodness and cinnamon dough. You know what I'm saying? It's just all of his just goodness just manifested on the plate. It was beautiful, and we ate them and loved them. And there were delicious things to dip them in. It was fantastic. We've thought about those probably, every, maybe not every day, but a lot of days since then. So last week... Amanda and I are going to have lunch with some friends. We hadn't gotten with them in a while, so we really wanted to make it nice. And so we decided, papacitos, churros, let's go. It's going to be amazing. And so we get there, and we're the first ones there. And they're like, do you want any appetizers? And we're like, no, we're getting the churros at the end. And she just looked at us real puzzled. 
churros. C-H-U. She's like, we don't have churros here. (laughs) What? (laughs) Churros. You got churros. We came in February. It wasn't this Papacitos. It was a different Papacitos. She's like, which one did you go to? We're like, we went to the one over on I-10. They go, oh, that's the test kitchen. I'm like, you shouldn't have a test kitchen. You should just have a kitchen. And um, uh, Amanda is pregnant right now. We're having a baby on 11-11, which is great. So we're real excited about that. But you don't mess with her food right now. Like, this is not the window where you mess with, with her food. And it and, and turns out that they didn't get good feedback at the test kitchen about the churros. So I don't know which one of you it was. <laughs> but shame on you. Shame on you. But that's what we do. We run it through our our me filter, everything. How does it affect us? And honestly, we do that with the scripture. We do that with the story of Jesus. We do that with the things of God. We run it through the, the me filter. So when Jesus is praying things like, the hour has come, glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. And, and he's saying in verse four, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. When he's talking about his primary motivation is not me and it's not us, but it is the glory of God that confronts that me filter. You see, this theme is, is everywhere in the scripture. Psalm chapter 24, verse 8, it says that God is a king of glory. Psalm 29, verse 2 says to uh, ascribe to God the glory due his name. Psalm 79, 9, ask God for salvation for the glory of his name. Psalm 96, 3 says declare his glory to all the nations. Psalm 115, 1 says not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8 says that God will not give his glory to anyone else. Isaiah chapter Chapter 43, verse 7 says, we were created for God's glory. Why did God knit you together in your mother's womb for his glory? Romans chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus, is, Jesus accepts us to the glory of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15 says that our thanksgiving, our gratitude is for God's glory. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12 says our faith brings God glory. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14 says that Christ redeemed us for God's glory. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness for his own glory. And all of this confronts our me filter. And that's a good thing for us. It's a good thing for us to have motivation other than me. Why? Because if your primary motivation is just you, what's going to happen and probably already has happened is you're going to come to a fork in the road as you follow Jesus. As you are a Christian, you're going to come to a fork in the road and you're going to have to decide between what God is asking from you and what you are asking from you. Because there's going to be a moment where that road splits in two, where what you want and where what God wants are not the same thing. And if you are your primary motivation, if everything comes through your me filter, you're going to choose to go your own way more often than not. I'll give you an example. Uh, If you have little ones, you might want to cover their ears just for just a few minutes. But when it comes to our sexual ethics, we do this. I mean, there's a million different ways to offend God and 
choose poorly when it comes to that. There's pornography. There's just good old-fashioned sleeping together. There's moving in together. There's same-sex attractions. There's adultery. There's watching movies that are just filled with naked people. There's endless ways that we can offend God and disobey God when it comes to this. And if you are the primary motivation of your faith, if it's just all about the good things that come to you, if everything runs through your me filter, then you'll just excuse your way into any of those behaviors. Uh, you'll say, everybody does it. You'll say, how, how, how can you expect us to wait? We're in our late 20s. We've waited long enough. We're committed to one another. You'll say, it's cheaper. It's just affordable. We can't afford to live by ourselves. It's just better to live together. We're going to get married anyway. We're already practically engaged. It's just the way that uh, the world works, just the way that I was made. If you run everything through your me filter when it comes to your faith, you can make any excuse and you will excuse yourself out of any hard choice. You're like, not me, I'm strong enough. No, you've just not been tempted enough yet. And that temptation is coming. But what Jesus does for us here is he sets a sign in the middle of the fork in the road that says to the glory of God. And you can't excuse yourself out of that. Instead of asking yourself, instead of asking myself at that fork in the road, should I go my own way or should I do my own thing? And well, like, you know, it's not a big deal. It's not that big a deal. Maybe just ask this. Will God be glorified? Will, will God get glory from my life? If I make this decision, how will God's glory be affected? If I choose path A instead of path B, it's what Isaiah chapter 58 verse 8 says. It says, then your light will appear like the dawn and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. See, the glory of God is just not about what you can give God. The glory of God is actually protection for you. When you will give yourself an out, the glory of God as the signpost at the fork in the road will actually protect you from disastrous decisions. Because you can't excuse your way around that. You just have to decide, I don't care. And instead of just a me filter, some of us need to add in that glory filter where we are as concerned about God's glory as Jesus was. So God is glorified when Jesus is glorified. Look at verse one again. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. So that's the idea. Glorify me. And when I and glorified, then I will glorify you. Look at verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus, by eavesdropping in on his prayer, we know that he's always been around. Now, the Gospel of John has already told us that in the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But here Jesus says it himself. I was with you before the world even existed. Before we created any of this, I was with you. And I had glory. I want you to turn to Psalm 104. Psalm 104, 
Verse 1, it says this. My soul, praise the Lord. Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with majesty and splendor. He wraps himself in light as if it were a robe, spreading out the sky like a canopy. So this verse says that God wraps himself in light like a robe. What did verse 5 back in John chapter 17 say? But that Jesus had glory with God. He shared glory with God before the world existed. So that what I believe is that the Father and the Son before the foundation of the world were both clothed in light. They wore it like a garment. We see this in Joshua. Joshua, the leader of Israel, is getting ready to lead his people against Jericho. Big battle coming up. And Jesus appears to him in the Old Testament as the commander of the Lord's army. And he, he appears in bright light. And Joshua is afraid. And he's like, I don't know who you are. Are you for the, those guys or are you for us? Jesus had glory. He was dressed in bright splendor. Wrapped in light before the foundation of the world. Now you may think, well, why didn't Jesus just come like that? Why didn't Jesus just come like that? If Jesus had been born in Bethlehem as a big ball of holy light, then everybody would believe in him. Everybody would, you know, he wouldn't have to have been crucified or maybe he still would have had to do all that, but there wouldn't have been any doubt about who he was or who the allegiance should go to. If Jesus was just dressed in all that light, all that bright splendor, we would have known and we would have believed. Everybody would believe. That's not actually true. Exodus chapter 34 tells a story of Moses going on to the uh, mountain to be with God on Mount Sinai. And he's up there for 40 days. I can't pray for two minutes, but Moses was up there for 40 days. He's up on that mountain. He's up there 40 days and he comes down off the mountain. And while he was up there with God, as he's dressed in light, some of that light rubs off on Moses. And he comes down the mountain and his face is glowing. Now you think the people of Israel would be like, this is amazing. Our leader, our shepherd, the one leading us through this wilderness, he's been up there with God and he is so in tune with God that God's garment of light has rubbed off on him. But that's not what they did. In fact, they were terrified and they wouldn't go near him. And they made him a veil so that when he came off the mountain with all that light, he could pull down his veil so they didn't have to be scared. And when he would go back up on the mountain to be with God, he'd take it off so he could take in God fully. So we would like to say that if Jesus came in all of his glory, in his bright splendor, in his his garment of light, that we would see it and we would acknowledge it and it would be a great thing. But actually what it would make him is unapproachable. We wouldn't know that he would sympathize with us. We wouldn't know that he'd be tempted with us. We wouldn't know that he would suffer like us. It would make him unapproachable. So what happened? The pre-existing Son of God, dressed in bright glory, took off his garment and was born in a manger in Bethlehem. I think that's why the angels celebrated like they did when Jesus was born. Because you and I, we didn't get what kind of sacrifice that was for Jesus. We've never seen him all dressed in light, so what does it matter to us if he's born in Bethlehem? Makes for a cool holiday. But the angels knew the sacrifice that he was making by taking off his garment of holy light and being born in the likeness of men. So they thought if Jesus can't show his glory, then we'll show his glory for him. They came on the hillside with the shepherds, scared the life out of them. 
And Jesus is born in Bethlehem, grows in favor with God and man. At about 30 years old, starts his mission, calling disciples, teaching the word of God, teaching about the kingdom, opening up the kingdom of God. Sometimes he's loved, sometimes he's hated. He's betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's arrested, he's tortured, sentenced to death, crucified. Three days later, risen from the grave. Spends 40 days with his disciples, helping them understand that all these things had to happen. Giving them their mission. Putting in their hands the kingdom of God. And then he ascends up into heaven. And when he ascended up into heaven, he put his robe of light back on. He put his bright splendor back on. He put his glory back on. How do we know this? Because the next time that we see Jesus is in Acts chapter 9. Saul, a persecutor of the church, on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus to persecute and kill and torture and arrest more Christians. Jesus appears to him and he appears to him in such light that Saul is blinded. Can't even see. Revelation chapter 1. The apostle John is in prison on this island. And he's with the Lord in the spirit praying on, on a Sunday. He's having church, but he's the only one. And he hears this voice and he turns around. And he sees Jesus there. He hasn't seen Jesus just since Jesus ascended up into heaven. And it says when he turns around and sees Jesus. And his face was shining like the sun at midday. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He took his glory off. He did what he had to do. And then he put it back on. But this is not the Jesus that most of us have pictured this morning. We have pictured only the Jesus in sandals. We've only pictured the Jesus in some kind of brown, torn up robe. We've only pictured the Jesus walking from one dusty town to another dusty town. We've only pictured the Jesus on some very peaceful hillside with little lambs and sheep running around teaching some message about peace. And all those things are true. But all those things are true while now he's wrapped in bright splendor. God is glorified when Jesus is glorified. And in the midst of all that glory, we receive eternal life. Turn back to John chapter 17. And this is where we'll finish this morning. Verse 2. For you gave him authority over all flesh, so that he may give eternal life to all you have given him. So God gave... Jesus eternal uh, authority over all humanity so that he could give eternal life. And this is eternal life, verse 3, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Now when most of us hear the words eternal life, we think they're synonymous and interchangeable with the word eternity. But eternity is really a marking of time. How long was that sermon? Oh man, it was eternity. But eternal life is different. Eternal life is not a moment on the calendar. Eternal life is a way of living. It's, it's, a, it's a, a way of existing. It's something powerful, something vibrant, and something alive. And what is eternal life, he says? It's knowing the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. So that's eternal life. It's knowing God 
And it's knowing Jesus. So what does it mean to, to know someone? Amanda and I met, when Amanda and I met, I was 19 years old. I was a wee lad. And uh, so we had a friend who was kind of laying the groundwork. It wasn't like a blind date, but uh, they were kind of prepping the field, if you know what I mean. And so, uh, you know, I cared about her character and what a wonderful person she was and if she loved Jesus. You know, the first question she asked this person about me, how tall is he? Which I don't know what her standard was because I'm not like a super giant, you know. I'm obviously a giant of a man in my character, but uh, I'm just kidding. These are jokes, people. So somebody's laying the groundwork and neither one of us were really interested. I, you know, we said we weren't interested and then I saw her and then suddenly, you know, you're like, whoa, man, she's, she's good looking. I'm now very interested. And so how do I, how do I get to know her? How do I get to know her? Well, the way you get to know her is you learn her story. So I just ask her questions, ask her all kinds of questions. I love to ask questions. Tell me about your life. Where'd you grow up? What's your neighborhood like? What's your family like? What kind of house you live in? What kind of car you drive? It's getting to know her story. It's facts. You learn the facts. And then you you also want your story and their story to align and collide. And so that's what I tried to do. The first week that we met, we were actually working at the summer camp type thing uh, for uh, teenagers, middle school and high school students. And I was the recreation guy, recreation guy. And so uh, I had to make a lot of trips to Walmart to buy supplies and so I just say, hey, why don't you, uh, you come with me? And so she did. She came with me. We bought a bunch of supplies. Now, I'm a real smart guy, and uh, I know that I can buy all the supplies at one time for the entire week. But that means only one trip to Walmart. So I would just buy daily bread. We need balloons every day this week. Well, I'm just going to buy the balloons that we need for today so that we have an excuse to go to Walmart again tomorrow. If there was a game that I had scheduled that didn't need any supplies, I'd change the game to need supplies. If there was a way that I could turn one shopping, one stop shopping into multiple stop shopping, then I would because I wanted to get to know her. And when you get to know somebody, you know their story, you know the facts, and then your story and their story comes together and you align your life with them. That's what it means to know somebody. And then we just kept doing that. So after the first week, then I learned more facts. And we aligned our life more and then more facts and more aligning of our lives and more facts and more aligning of our lives. That's how you get to know somebody. And this is what Jesus is saying is eternal life. It's knowing facts, knowing the story of God. And man, thank God that he has given us his word. I mean, I don't think that we understand what a gift this is. Because A, we have a God who wants to know us and wants us to know him. And how do you find out about him? You find out the facts, you find out the story. And it's great because you don't have to come to church to find out the story. You don't have to call a spiritual leader to find out the story. You can go to the bookstore and in seven seconds you can have the word of God for yourself. You can go straight to him, align mind, to align life. 
I want my heart to align with your heart. I want my mind to align with your heart. And then the beautiful thing is then we just repeat it. That was week one. And then week two, it's more facts and it's more aligning. And week three and year three and year 30, it's more facts and it's more aligning on into eternity. Most of us are terrified of eternity, number one, because we're not sure that it's really secure for us. And we're also terrified because it sounds incredibly boring because the only thing we've ever heard is eternity but forever you are going to discover new and wonderful and glorious and bright splendid things about God and you'll have responsibility there heaven is not an eternal vacation you're going to have a purpose in heaven and on and on and on learning new and glorious and wonderful things about the one true God and on and on and on finding out new and unique ways to align your life with his life. This is eternal life. A lot of us, that's not what we signed up for. We signed up because we didn't want to go to hell. And because that's our only motivation, me filter. All of this, this is just church. This is just going to church. Just doing my due diligence. Offering my bare minimum. Just to make sure that insurance I bought when I was 7 years old, 10 years old, 20 years old, still is good. This is not eternal life. Eternal life is that you're in a relationship with the one true God. And Jesus Christ who he has sent. Know the facts and you align your life. That's only possible in the midst of all the glory that the Father and the Son share. I mean, think about what it cost Jesus for you to know the Father, for you to have the facts. For you to be able to align your life with his life, think about what it cost Jesus. He had to take off his garment of light. Imagine if somebody said to you, hey, you know the the very best thing about you, the thing that everybody loves, your greatest strength? You can't ever do that again. You can't be known for that. Nobody in your life will ever know that. In fact, they'll just assume that you're weak. They'll just assume that you're common. The thing that makes you special and holy and unique got to take that off it's what Jesus did took off his glory so God is glorified when Jesus is glorified and in the midst of all that glory we receive eternal life let's pray